I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It was Saturday, September 20, 1997, and over 58,000 people were at Brisbane's ANZ Stadium for the inaugural Super League Grand Final. After an extravagant week-long build-up and pre-match entertainment featuring Olivia Newton-John, by the 43rd minute, the on-field fireworks had been in short supply. Suddenly, a wayward pass from Wendell Saylor ended up with the Sharks, and as Russell Richardson scored, the game roared to life with intensity and attacking play. For Sharks fans, however, it was a temporary glimmer of hope, as the brilliance of Steve Renoff and company steered the home side to victory. After being hailed as presumptive champions the entire season, the Broncos had made it official. This is part one of Two Tones the 35th chapter in the Rugby League Digest in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? Fantastic, mate. How are you? I'm really good. A sense of relief is washing over me. We have finally made it to the end of our Super League domestic season recap. By no means the end of our season, but it still feels like a milestone to get to Super League grand final day or night, as the case may be. I've learned that when you get these season recaps, you really need to have someone overseeing your um, mania because it can get out of control. So for the (laughs) ARL one, I'm going to have a couple of guys next to you the whole time. (laughs) Uh, Yes. (laughs) Well, our attitude here is why trim fat? The fat's sometimes the best part. So (laughs) we like to keep it shaggy. But I got to say, this is going to be a very controlled episode because there's so much great content over the next hour or so. I I really enjoyed putting this one together. We're going to look at the grand final. But before we do that, we need to look at the finals. And before we do that, we need to look at who got there and how they got there. So This may be my favourite Super League magazine spin of the whole year. Graham Bicknell at the end of June, riding on the prospects of the Super League finals. Really, you could throw a blanket over the field. A photo finishes in the wind. (laughs) You could take a real lesson in positivity from the Super League magazine. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, So quite off the mark, really. The Broncos, as we said in the last episode, finished five points clear. The semi-finals were decided a week out, which just thinking about football today, it kind of makes sense that in a top five system that would happen semi-regularly. But it surprises me how often we get that in the top eight era, like a clear gap between eighth and ninth. Yeah. But that in itself was a bit of a blow to the credibility of Super League when they pitched that it was best of the best and every week was, you know, the country going at it and anyone could win on any given day. As it turns out, we knew weeks out who the likely finalists were going to be. In a further blow to the credibility of the new competition, the five teams that made it were the five existing clubs. None of the new clubs or the very recent clubs made it. And 
for all the talk of a national competition, we had three Sydney teams plus Canberra and Brisbane. This is the thing, mate. It's like the pitch was for an actual Super League, not two half-assed competitions vying for a waning public interest, you know? True. They're still pitching as if it was the best of the best when it clearly wasn't. It's. Uh... I guess they wrote their marketing material two years ahead of the competition yeah. starting. <laughs> and saying that, you can't really say, come and watch the best of the rest, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you, you can't scale that downwards. You can't come out in 95 all guns blazing and then 97 have some watered down Come watch a fairly decent competition. It's what really, um, I think, got the public's goat and created the overall negative vibe was both sides bullshitting everybody. (laughs) Oh, I'm pretty sure only Super League diehards were reading Super League, the magazine, because if Aussies for the ARL or any other of, you know, ARL aligned people got wind of the spin that was being produced in that magazine every (laughs) week, it would have been out of control. I've got confidence that Barb wasn't spending money on Super League magazine. <laughs> i got to say, on Super League's final system, one thing that they did that was very sensible and very smart was to go back to the traditional top five format. In a 10-team comp, it was the only choice. The ARL in a 12-team comp, it was the only choice for them too, but instead they went wacky with the seven-team finals with redundant games in the middle of them and... We'll break down how that played out when we get to our ARL recap, but it was just very smart of Super League to not compromise the competition by going with some wacky semifinals format. I didn't mind the seven-team idea and all that sort of stuff. We'll talk about it later, like you said. But again, it's the schizophrenic nature of their, we're traditional, we're new, we're wacky. (laughs) It's like they never got it right. Yeah. One thing Super League did well to avoid was it was mooted at various stages that they would be looking at a three-game grand final. I had a good think about that after receiving your dossier. I mean, if that was how it was from the beginning, it would be just like Origin. It would be accepted, but it just wouldn't be accepted. (laughs) No. A hundred years in. Yeah. I think it works in some sports, but in a sport as physical as rugby league, you can't have a... 20-week season, semi-finals, and then a three-game grand final. It would just be carnage. We're going to talk about, you know, the usual, you know, sicknesses and injuries leading up to the grand final. So you put two more games into that, yeah. you have, like, four players left. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, the suspension hearings every week and just let him play. <laughs> and <laughs> Can you imagine the game to judiciary? <laughs> <laughs> You'd have to postpone game two to get all the hearings done. Yeah. <laughs> so the other thing Super League did was to make the semifinals completely like home and away based. So the ARL had been moving slowly towards that with finally allowing semifinals to be played in Brisbane a couple of years earlier. But now with Super League, every game would be played at the home ground of the team that finished higher on the ladder. Yeah, common sense system, but if the grounds are like really shitty, which they still were and still are in many cases. This is the problem. Yeah. They talked it up as, you know, finally there's a real advantage for finishing higher on the ladder. There's a reward for your regular season performance, which is all well and good. And then they were saying, oh, we're moving away from Moore Park. And it's like, okay, well, that's great. But when you move from Moore Park to Belmore and Woolaware, <laughs> it creates an issue. The, the word Woolaware shouldn't be in a national comp. <laughs> so 
so basically no semifinals were held at the SFS. The Sharks played two games against Canberra at Shark Park. The Bulldogs played the Panthers at Belmore. And we're going to talk about where Brisbane played their semifinal. And I do like the idea of a team being rewarded. So in that respect, it was good for Sharks to get that reward. They were playing at night, which as we talked about in the last episode, is a sizable advantage for them. That was undercut somewhat by the fact that the fans were ambushed by an earlier start time. So they were used to 7.30 starts. The game started at 6 p.m. And uh, Shane Richardson noted that quite a few people were turning up at the ground well after kickoff. I have no sympathy for that ambush. You need to look at the ticket. You need to (laughs) look at the time on the advertisement and sort of run your life by that. (laughs) And it's funny that ambushes are seeping out of the game into the crowd. (laughs) (laughs) So it was a game that Canberra were expected to win. They, as we talked about earlier in this chapter, had started the season slow but had developed some momentum And it was just viewed that they were coming on at the right time. They had the class. The Sharks were pretenders and Canberra were just going to sweep through. As it turns out, that's not what happened. Cronulla got the win, 22-18 in a scoreline that even Bradley Clyde said flattered the Raiders. So it was once again Cronulla proving that they were a clear second best team in 1997. So the other semi-final of that weekend was Canterbury versus Penrith. So fourth place Canterbury taking on fifth place Penrith. This ended up being the only semi-final that didn't go chalk. So Penrith beat Canterbury 15-14 uh, in, you know, maybe the best actual game of the semi-final series. The difference was a field goal to Ryan Girdler right on the stroke of half time, which I feel like these days that's just become kind of a standard play if you're in position right at half time, but I don't recall seeing too much of that happening in the 90s. Especially even good. Yeah, so a decisive play, and as I said, the only example of a lower-ranked team beating the higher-ranked team in that semi-final series. See, right there is an example of what Super League was aiming for, games like that every week. Yeah. <laughs> and they certainly didn't get that in the first semi-final. A game held at Stockland Stadium which geography buffs may realise is not in Brisbane, but in Townsville. Didn't they have Newcastle for a while as well? Well, Newcastle had the sponsorship. That's right, yeah. And they had the um, Stockland Shopping Centre up here as well. Yeah. That's why I'm confused. <laughs> but it seemed like Stockland was everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, down in Sydney, I didn't notice that. So I think that must be in Newcastle. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't get away from it. So... Why was a Brisbane semi-final played in Townsville? It was because ANZ Stadium was unavailable until the grand final. And I tried to look into the exact reason why, and it seems that it came down to a outdoor theatre spectacular version of the opera Aida, <laughs> which took place at ANZ Stadium the night before the scheduled semi-final. So that was going to feature a 1,000 performers with camels, horses, sheep and donkeys all on the field <laughs> of ANZ Stadium. Uh, and the verdict on that opera was that if you're going to go outdoors, you need a true rectangular stadium. So the Australian's theatre critic, Jacqueline Pascoe, said, the first thing the audience noticed they took their seats for this spectacular version of, of Aida was that the stage seemed about as far away as Egypt. <laughs> 
so they had the same experience as the football fan. I know. I just love that. One of the few times that rugby league and opera align is rectangular <laughs> stadiums only. Well, I mean, when I turned on the coverage, I forgot how many metres there was between the front row and the sideline. Yeah. It must have been 25 metres. Yeah. From the front row. So much space was there that they were able to put in temporary seating on the field on both sides that we're going to get to looked awful. Well, when you have an Olympic running track around there and you get rid of it. Yeah. So ANZ is out. I haven't been able to find whether Suncorp was like there was a clash of fixtures or whether it came down to the deal that the Broncos had with Brisbane City Council in exclusivity at ANZ Stadium. But I just can't see a scenario where playing at Townsville is considered a better choice than being at Suncorp. Yeah, madness. I mean, in saying that, they were sort of new to football still up there and can guarantee they're going to turn up at least. Yeah, totally. And also, I'd say there'd be quite a few people who got on board in 88 and didn't jump ship in 95. So it's a nice reward for the people of Townsville who showed up every week to a wooden spoon team to get a semi-final there is recognition of what a good fan base they were. And as it turned out, that semi-final was the only game in town in terms of football that night because the AFL made the decision to put back their semi-final due to the coverage of the funeral for Diana, Princess of Wales. Now, I'm not a promoter. I'm not... uh... Bill Morty, I'm not Frank Warren, I'm not Don King, but I know that Diana dying is going to take a low shine off your event. Yeah, well, funnily enough, Adrian Lamb talking about the Roosters playing that afternoon said, it was discussed a lot and I was personally upset. The key word for the day was enjoyment, but the news of her death certainly upset that. So even the players struggling to get up for the game. Uh, (laughs) One thing this series has done for me is to make me really look back on my teendom and the type of person I was then. And the thing that stands out the most is that I loved a boycott like nothing else as a teenager. (laughs) Not only was I boycotting the Super League, I boycotted (laughs) Diana's funeral. I was disgusted with my family sitting there watching it that Saturday night. (laughs) (laughs) On what grounds? Oh, I guess anti-royal sentiment. You were a militant little bugger, you were. <laughs> um, I was on a school excursion in Canberra on one of those bus coach trip things. We had this math teacher. She was like young. She looked a bit like Kim Wilde. Oh, yeah. And uh, we used to call her kids in America. But she was in tears when the news dropped. And I was there thinking, come on. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you're in tears. You didn't even know her. You know, so <laughs> but um, looking back now, I realize that it was a big thing. Yeah, it was a big thing. I can see that now. But let's get back to the football. It was an error-riddled performance from the Sharks that saw the Broncos easy winners 34-2, to the Sharks' credibility taking a knock, while the Broncos made a statement to show that they were the ones to beat, as everyone already knew. Look, it's just unfair because 
We've had a friend of the show, Ben Darwin, former Wallaby and um, founder of Gainline Analytics, you know, the um, absolute oracle, in my view, of predicting sporting events. <laughs> and um, the continuity that the Broncos squad had versus the Sharks squad was just unfair. The amount of grand final experiences and playing together and origins and everything, like, it was an almost um, insurmountable task, really. Yeah, it was. And you say continuity, but it wasn't just a consistent bunch of players. It was a consistent bunch of the best players of the era. And when one of those left, three others sprung up in their place. So what could any other team do? Fertile soil up there. So an easy win for the Broncos. In the other semifinal, Canberra had an easy victory over the Panthers which would ultimately prove inconsequential to the rest of the finals. So we'll move on to the grand final qualifier in which Cronulla took on Canberra again at Shark Park. And this raised questions as to whether it was too much reward for the Sharks to get two home finals against the Raiders at Shark Park in the space of three weeks. It's rigged. (laughs) And this is where I think the balance comes into it. You know, as we've seen in the NRL at times, week one, you can get your home semifinal, but in a prelim situation, you're going to be in the main stadium of the city or one of the main stadiums. But regardless, the Sharks got the reward for being the second best team of the year. A pretty dour game, won 10 to 4, with Matt Rogers scoring all of Cronulla's points. The word dour featured a bit too much at times <laughs> as the season drew to a close. <laughs> So the Raiders were disappointed with their loss. Prescient from Ricky Stewart, who was asked after the game who he thought will win the grand final, he said, if I pick Brisbane, people will think it's sour grapes because we lost to Cronulla. But I'll say this, if Cronulla can only get us with one try when they have so much ball, they'll have a tough time next week. How can he turn just a simple who's going to win into like a siege mentality? (laughs) (laughs) What What sort of mind... I think it just goes to show that for some players, the media stuff just washes over them. Some players really take it to heart. And Sticky, you could see everything that came out, he had his back up because he knew that he was going to cop it and there was going to be more criticism in the press. So that's how we got there to grand final 1997, Cronulla versus Brisbane. And I mentioned that there were no games played at the SFS during this final series. This included the grand final, which, as we all know, was played at ANZ Stadium in Brisbane. That wasn't a foregone conclusion. So it was basically open to all bidders. Very Super Leaguean proposal to make it a bidding situation. So Rebo talked about wanting a Super Bowl-style scenario where state governments could bid on the game and... We could work out a deal to get the game travelling. Victoria were invited to get involved. It's actually ahead of its time, that thinking, but in rugby league, you just want continuity. It's a classic good idea in theory that doesn't work in practice in our sporting culture and our, you know, the logistics of our country. So hold the grand final in Sydney or Brisbane, perfect. Doesn't really matter which. Melbourne... That's fine, but the MCG sucks for rugby league. Hold the game anywhere else in Australia, like what's the point? And I guess it's the same argument we're having in current times with Magic Weekend, what's the best way of doing it? But I think you have to look at the landscape you have and not try to artificially craft 
a Super Bowl thing that works in a country of 400 million people and, you know, stadiums in every major city that, you know, compared to what we have here. I think it runs deeper than that, mate. It's like, you know, it's a working class mentality. It's, um, you know, the soul of rugby league. I'm not saying that all the fans are working class now, but that whole thing of like, you know, comfort, you know, grand finals at this time every year. We've got the barbecue plan, the same people over every year. And, you know, we want yeah. the same stadium on TV. It's like, it's just that comfort thing with rugby league people. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You just want the same stadium on your telly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's comfort and it's tradition. And, Maybe it works in Magic Weekend to take that to some exotic place, but with the grand final, you want it to feel like every other grand final. I'm still reeling from the nines in Fiji, you know, like it's, <laughs> just keep it keep it regular. So it was going to be in Brisbane, and Rebo did a good job of selling that as a positive step and a necessary step. He said, "I don't apologise for looking at Queensland for the first grand final." Super League can't afford to have all our products in New South Wales. We've got to look at moving away, and I think Queensland stands out at favourite. Products. I think it made sense in a number of reasons. Firstly is the fact that in such a time of disillusionment and anti-Super League sentiment, that was less true in Brisbane than it was in Sydney by some order of magnitude. So it was necessary for Brisbane. Yeah, agreed. So even though Brisbane had had a down year as well in terms of crowd, they didn't emerge from Super League unscathed. It made sense for Super League to be there. Look, in Sydney, there would have been protests, bomb threats, who knows what else. Mm. I'm being serious too. (laughs) And on top of everything else, ANZ Stadium had the biggest capacity of any rugby league ground in Australia. So they had bigger capacity on their sidelines. Well, yeah. So the most Sydney clubs. (laughs) So. Basically, the league record for ANZ had been set in 1993, where 58,593 fans were there for a Broncos-St. George game. So the capacity was just under 60,000, but there was a possibility of extending that further by using the extensive sideline area to install temporary seating, which they ultimately did. In the end, they they only got you know 58,900 or something. So They broke that 93 record, but could have done without the on-field seating. Decent um, club game numbers. So they extended the stadium. i got to say, it looks awful. Yeah. In that era, though, it didn't look that bad in that era. All I noticed was the corners of the actual stadium seemed cut off by these temporary seats. And I, I just really wonder if everyone got a clear view because of it. It just oh, looks strange. I guarantee they didn't. I yeah. the, the most expensive seat in the house didn't get a clear view. Yeah. It reminds me of that um, Zoolander quote all the time, the centre for ants, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> but I still maintain it looks better than like the Adelaide Oval or um, mm. Melbourne Cricket Ground. <laughs> yeah. With that giant brown field. Yeah. And it was a farce in the implementation in that the Cronulla Sharks players and families were sitting on these transportable seats right in the midst of this crowd overspill. So kids were coming up to the players trying to get autographs and, you know, encroaching on their space until Shane Richardson had to make a stand and order everyone away. They're very lucky Canberra didn't make it then. Sticky was there for that. (laughs) And you might wonder, how do you go about organising such a logistical challenge? Well, you get the best man for the job, uh, a man with the coincidental name of Justin Rebo. 
who was <laughs> Super League's grand final project manager. <laughs> oh, we haven't talked about transferring nepotism across competitions. Yeah, yeah. It's rugby league DNA. I think Justin would have been about 25 at the time, tasked with the job, but, you know, he got it done, so all credit to him. So not everyone was on board with the Brisbane Grand Final. Perhaps predictably, Glenn Lazarus was one of those who spoke out against it. He said, I think that given the choice, most of the guys would prefer to play at the Sydney Football Stadium. I know I would. I wonder if he actually polled his teammates, most of whom were from Queensland and had played all their football in Brisbane. I think if I was from Brisbane playing at my home stadium, I'd be cheering. I'd bet pounds to peanuts he didn't poll anybody. I didn't know at the time what a contrarian bloke he was, but yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I like this. He goes on to say, I was in Sydney during the week and just driving along Anzac Parade gave me the indisputable feeling it was grand final time. To see the flags flying in the streets out near the stadium brought back all those great memories of past successes. I think that goes back to what you were saying about people just wanting it to look like a grand final like they're used to. Because those flags that used to line Anzac Parade at grand final time For me, they were the coolest thing. I spent a lot of time driving past them on the way to my grandparents' place and just seeing them just gave me a buzz that, you know, grand finals time's here. Yeah, so cool. But as we'll see, Super League went to way more effort to make Brisbane feel like the grand final city than just putting up some flags. So I, I think Lazarus may be a bit harsh there. Surprisingly, he had some support from Wayne Bennett, who said, I believe rugby league grand finals were born out of Sydney, and that's where they should be played. Without doubt, Sydney is the grand final spiritual home. <laughs> spiritual homes of the rugby league. <laughs> uh, some mandatory pre-grand final reporting. I know you'll appreciate this. This came from Super League magazine. Catering experts estimate that since rugby league moved to ANZ Stadium in 1993, Fans have devoured more than 15 semi-trailer loads of steaming hot chips, 1.5 million cans of beer and soft drink, and half a million meat pies and hot dogs. <laughs> it's long discussed in this podcast is the laziest journalism you can get, popularised by my man Buzz, but who are the catering experts? This is, what, this is what I want to ask you. Do you think a single catering expert was consulted, or is this just a figure pulled out of nowhere? They must have talked to somebody there, but, I mean, a catering expert. I don't think a catering expert is going to be an expert in volume capacity of a semi-trailer for a start. Yeah. I mean, is it someone just going, well, we had um like, roughly 35000 a month here come through and, you know, so yeah. in, in five years, and is, it that, is it that sort of figures or is it like sitting down with the algorithms and going like... <laughs> yeah. Or is it just Buzz getting his calculations that he did in 1993 and just adding to it each year? <laughs> what if he keeps a running tally? <laughs> I'd love to know if Buzz has a spreadsheet at home with, you know, hot dogs, <laughs> pies, cans of beer. Well, it's a guaranteed story every year, so why not? <laughs> but I mentioned that Super League went to a big effort to make Brisbane seem like the grand final city. And... A big part of that was making it grand final week, which I've always thought of the grand final as grand final week. It's my favorite week of the year, but that's always been like a personal thing, just reading the stories and getting more and more buzzed as the week goes on. (laughs) Reading the stories, learning about the workings of a hyperbaric chamber. (laughs) (laughs) 
But Super League went all out to make it a carnival event. So they had a ceremony where they presented Wally Lewis with the number one ticket for the grand final. There were events all over the place culminating in the Super League ball, a black tie affair two nights before the grand final where they would also do the awards for the year. They were ahead of their time on that, and a few times they've been ahead of their time in promo. Yeah, Um, yeah. It's a bit of a gimme, but give them kudos anyway. Yeah. City Rowers Tavern was the epicenter of festivities for the week. I'll just read you a few highlights from their packed calendar of events. On Monday, you had a no-talent karaoke party hosted by Super League players. (laughs) You had a Super League players panel hosted by Tony Durkin, a clothing parade featuring Alan Langer, the (laughs) after-party of the Super League ball, uh, and then Friday night, another karaoke party hosted by Super League players. Pretty wise to get those sort of accessible events. Karaoke is pretty new at the time, but very accessible for everybody. Everyone has a laugh. Yeah. And another thing that sounds like the complete opposite of wise, but ensure of making that the players were lubricated enough to mingle with the fans at City Rowers and make it a great night for all. Two players from each club were flown up for the event and given tickets for free drinks at the club for the duration of the stay. <laughs> oh, God almighty. That's got <laughs> dynamite in a furnace uh, <laughs> potential. I loved uh, Steve Price's comment on this. Darren Breed and myself were the lucky two from the Bulldogs. And even though I don't drink, it was one of the greatest weeks I've been involved with. Word soon got out as to what was going on. Free drinks and pub promotions all round. Suddenly there were players all over the place wanting to get to Brisbane to be part of it. We started with about 16 blokes and ended up with more than twice that many. Some of them even cut short their holidays to be there. <laughs> they were threatening to get on the drink all the time. <laughs> that goes away to explaining why Steve Price is such a good bloke. Yeah. No aggro juice. Yeah. But, um... Do you reckon they sat down, and I'm being serious, and said, right, we've got two blokes here. Who can we pick? You know, we don't want any Julian O'Neill types, you know? (laughs) Oh, like, you'd have to think so. I mean, Darren Britt and Steve Price, two good choices for the dogs. Darren Britt, I'm sure, got amongst it, but he's a veteran. I can't see him getting too out of control. Steve Price, a non-drinker, perfect. So that gives me pause to think that they did think strategically about who they'd be inviting. (laughs) North Queensland, can we have Nandruku, please? <laughs> Getting the players to mingle with the fans, it didn't really apply to uh, Andrew G and Alfie and the walkabout London <laughs> a few years later when they brushed me. But <laughs> I can't wait when this is going to be our buzz style, meaningless tally when we get to this series. Andrew Paskin mentioned Andrew G and Anna Langer brushing him about 30 <laughs> times. <laughs> <laughs> and he also ate 500,000 meatballs. <laughs> there was the grand final parade, which perhaps ironically, Laurie Daly was tasked with holding the trophy as it drove down the main street of Brisbane in an open top car with Alexandra Paul, Baywatch star. And Laurie had to explain the 89 dropping of the trophy, which she found amusing, apparently. Now, do you think she found that amusing? <laughs> Well, it was reported as her finding it amusing. I would love to be a fly on the wall for the Alexandra Paul Laurie Daly combo. <laughs> so that was just a small selection of the events. There were things happening everywhere. Steve Price again thought maybe they went overboard. He said, to be honest, I think they might have gone too far with it. 
Somewhere in the middle would have been perfect. That was one of the problems. This is the thing. They were in a rock and a hard place, given they had half a comp. So what do you do? Just put the white flag up or polish that turd till it can't gleam any brighter? Yeah. I think Glenn Lazarus makes a good point that it was a bit too much pressure on the players playing the grand final. Under the ARL, you had the grand final breakfast, but that was basically it. For the rest of the week, you were left to prepare for the game. It's another advantage for the Broncos because the Sharks, that would have affected them a lot worse. Yeah, yeah, totally. And Matt Rogers actually said that in his book. He said that it was just too much. It was like a full-on week with all these events going on. It was hard to get settled for the game. And we're looking at this through modern eyes, like they're professionals now. They know how to handle the media a little bit better and events, that type of thing, corporate stuff. Back then, basically anything from Princess Dyer to a stub toe can put them off their game. So Yeah. Yeah, like when you're not used to it and suddenly there's all these changes all at once, it's a big ask. But Alexandra Paul wasn't just there for the grand final parade. She was actually the star attraction at the Super League ball, which I love this description. It's such a rugby league mix of highbrow and lowbrow. (laughs) What a night of nights. The Queensland Symphony Orchestra, conducted by the maestro of music, Tommy Tycho, performing with Grace Knight and Wendy Matthews. And the Telstra medal, the symbol of Super League's super player, was presented by Baywatch star Alexandra Paul. <laughs> now, is Tommy Tycho related to Timmy Trumpet? <laughs> <laughs> I had that exact same thought, but he was a Hungarian-Australian conductor who had a foot in both the pop and classical camp, so a respected classical musician. Now, I love the fact they're getting the orchestras involved and stuff in rugby league, a bit more class, as it were, and I love Wendy Matthews as a rugby league-type um, artist. Alexandra Paul, I wouldn't have went with that, but it's hard to describe to the youngsters out there how big Baywatch was amongst vermin back then. It was massive. <laughs> it was massive, but to me it seems a bit low rent to have a second-tier Baywatch girl given the honour of handing out the prestigious Player of the Year award. I looked her up because I didn't remember her, and then I remembered her boat race when I saw it. Very yeah. attractive uh, woman, but she was about 38 or something at the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think by 97, the heyday had passed. You know, you'd had the Pamela era, the Erica Aleniak. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> if you'd asked me six years ago if that name would pop up in the series, <laughs> I would have given you 10,000 to one. but to the award itself it was a strange voting system where coaches of each club voted on their best player for each game on a 3-2-1 basis those votes were then tallied and the top player from each club was then nominated for the award which meant there were 10 players finalists and media representatives would then vote on those 10 players to come up with a winner convoluted and it also meant that it was a less star-studded top 10 than you'd perhaps want. So the 10 finalists for the Super League Player of the Year award were Mark Corvo from Adelaide, Stacey Jones, Kevin Walters, Laurie Daly, Darren Britt, David Peachy, Tim Madison from the Hunter Mariners, Owen Cunningham, Ryan Girdler, and Robbie Kearns. Tim Madison was up there with Corvo for Super League Made Him. Mm. Great season. Yeah. But were they the 10 best players of the year, it's hard to see how you could make a case for that. It's just hilarious to me. I loved him as a player, but the fact that Darren Britt was so prevalent in Super League. Yeah, yeah. 
he's obviously a lot better player than a journeyman prop, but that was his vibe, you know? Like, yeah, totally. <laughs> he's like one of the big faces of Super League. <laughs> so Super League Magazine's team of the year, just for a bit of context, Darren Locker at fullback, Wendell Saylor and Matt Rogers on the wing, Steve Renoff and Ryan Girdler in the centres, Laurie Daly and Alan Langer in the halves, Darren Smith at lock, Steve Kearney and Dave Ferner in the second row, props of Rodney Howe and Shane Webke and Craig Gower at hooker. So that's star-studded. That's a pretty good team. As it turns out, Laurie Daly won the Player of the Year award, which we've talked about before as you know, asserting what a class player he still was. Interestingly enough, after the grand final, I heard Sturlow on the coverage talk about Darren Lockyer and said, no disrespect to Laurie Daly, who's a wonderful player, but for me, Darren Lockyer was you know, easily the best player of the year this year. It was great to hear Sterler's commentary back then. It was a little bit less polished and a bit more real. Yeah. We're both big Stella fans of his analysis, but he was bigging up Lockyer from his junior days, and he was the biggest Lockyer supporter. And mm. um, You could tell in that, in that coverage, but he did say something funny. He goes, look... I probably watched a few more Brisbane games, but for mine, he was the yeah. better player. <laughs> so if you didn't watch all the games, how are you going to be accurate, you know? But really, out of Lockyer, Langer, and Kevin Walters, any three of those could have credibly been the best player of the year in Super League. So it just shows the flaws in this system. But I'm happy for Laurie Daly to get that recognition. Yeah, we did the heavy lifting, mate. So um, you probably got a few votes for that as well. Mm. And Wayne Bennett was named Coach of the Year, beating John Lang and Graham Murray. And it was actually the first time he'd won that award since 87 at Canberra. So deserved honour for him. But let's get to game day itself. And I just want to start by talking about some of the narratives going into each of these teams. So the Sharks were up against history. For a start, it would have been the biggest semi-final turnaround in terms of beating a team in the grand final that you had been beaten by in the semifinals. So the record, uh, St. George actually sit on either side of that record. So in 1958, they were beaten by West 34 to 10 in the semifinals before going on to win the grand final. And in 1999, they beat Melbourne 34 to 10. And apparently, I can't, memory's hazy, apparently it didn't go their way in the grand final. <laughs> So there were 17 examples of teams losing a semi-final and then beating the same opponent in the grand final, but 13 of those came in the top five or top four era final series, I think. It's a lot harder to do that in the top eight system. On top of that, there was a massive gulf in terms of grand final experience. The Sharks had a combined 60 seconds of grand final experience with Jason Stevens, the only player who'd played in the grand final, that was at St. George in 93, and he came off injured after one minute. So that was the extent of the Sharks' grand final experience. That's amazing. And I love this speech from ET. This was an article in the Daily Telegraph in the lead-up to the grand final. He said, I realised I had to tell them just how tough this game can be. It can be cruel and uncaring. It isn't always sentimental, and it doesn't always show you mercy. So I decided it was time for the most important speech of my life. I directed my words at the young blokes. Veterans like Danny Lee, Les Davidson and Mitch Healy already knew what I meant. I told them there is nothing inevitable about rugby league. Making a grand final was something that some of them would only ever have one shot at. It's so easy to think that there's always next year, especially when you're a 21-year-old playing first grade football. And those words, very sadly proven quite correct. Tawera Nikau was the only player in that shark squad 
who would play another grand final. Well, you saw E.T.'s reaction when Cronulla won it, the tears streaming down his face. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, we'll talk about the reactions at the tail end of the episode, but I thought on the winning and losing side, it was both a bit muted for the most part. But E.T., you could just see it in his face. It was almost as if he knew that this was his chance. Yeah, absolutely. And a shame for such an you know, amazing player. And you mentioned... 2016 and that beautiful moment of him and Gal embracing. This was from that same Daily Telegraph article. I'm going to run out onto the field on Saturday night and play for those who did not win a premiership for the Sharks. I remember playing with Steve Rogers when I was a teenager and he wasn't. I now flick past to his son on the wing and marvel at the likeness between father and son. I also remember the coaches and the teammates who entered each season with great hope, only to let it go before the finals, or like last season during the finals. This grand final is for them. I'm a focused player, but thoughts of them will not escape me when I run onto the field on Saturday night. Mm. It's just so beautiful to me thinking about ET, thinking about this game in those terms, and then it not working out, but having Gal do the same thing for him 20 years later. Yeah, yeah. And after our last episode, my favourite part of every episode release is the stories that come out of it from listeners. And there was a lot of Dean Treister talk in the aftermath of that episode, which led me to an article in the lead-up to the 2016 Grand Final where Treister, who is actually like a multi-millionaire in the US, he has a, a sample book company, he flew out with his family for the Grand Final and all the Sharks old boys from the 90s were there together and so cool. You know, spent the week together and then celebrated together during the game. Like it's it's just awesome. Well, it's amazing that he could juggle those commitments. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, there's so many amazing post rugby league career stories in rugby league. I know the biggest sample book company in the US. Or something. <laughs> it's like, how would you predict that? <laughs> so I think the emotion was with the sharks in terms of storylines. What could you say? Trying to build it up for the Broncos. It's we don't want to be the first Broncos team to lose a grand final. We're playing it at home, so we don't want to disappoint the Brisbane fans. You couldn't really build up the same heartwarming narratives. So it was lucky that they were just a good enough team that it didn't matter. The other narrative was the referee, Bill Harrigan, who was refing his first grand final since 1991 and bowed to public pressure and cut his hair for the occasion. It was still pretty shaggy. Yeah, he said, I had three inches taken off the back and sides. Everyone kept saying, get a haircut, so I did. <laughs> the vitriol towards that bloke's hair was crazy. <laughs> I think I was part of it back then as well. But I was definitely part of it. <laughs> you were boycotting his hair. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realise he had such a big break between grand finals, though. Yeah, I know. I mean, I guess he had 95 and 96, he wasn't there, but... Yeah, like a good three-year period where I thought he would have taken over as the choice by then, but not the case. It seems like hyperbole now, but you could really tell how he controlled the game. He's like no other. And watching yeah. that game back, I kind of wish we had him guys like him now. Yeah. I don't think there's anyone I've seen since who had that same control. And I don't know what it is. Like, What quality do you need to get that respect and get the players in line? Is it just not having the ratty little voice, as you uh, often talk about? Well, that helps, I think. But it's also like he believed he was better than them, you know? Mm, <laughs> like, yeah. He was a copper, so yeah, that's part of it as well, I think. 
Mm. You got that authoritative uh, way about them. So let's get to the entertainment, the main event, which was a 20th anniversary celebration of Greece. <laughs> Which I love the way Super League magazine really tries to sell everything that Super League did, perhaps unnecessarily. So they had a story about it where they outlined the case for Greece. They said, it's one of the most successful movie musicals ever made. The film continues to play to appreciative audiences years after its release. It's been performed somewhere on stage in the world ever since 1977. A US production is currently on tour. A new multi-million dollar Australian production will open in Melbourne next year. It's like, just tell us that you're doing a Grease show. We don't need the the marketing strategy behind it. What did you write in the notes that was really funny about that? Hang on, let me find it. <laughs> Super League unnecessarily lays out the case for Grease. It's like, <laughs> everybody, it's like ice cream, puppies, really good stuff. <laughs> so, so the executive producer of the grand final, David Hart, said, Greece is an ideal stadium show because fans of every lo- age love the music, fans of every age love Olivia, and Super League will deliver all three. I mean, by my count, there's only two things that they're delivering, but... That was second prime era Olivia too. Yeah, and that was the coup. It was getting Olivia there. Uh, we both watched her portion of the Greece spectacular. What are your thoughts on Livy? Oh, I mean, is there anybody alive that doesn't love her? But, I mean, um, when Chia was doing Hopelessly Devoted to You, the slow ballad, I was like, this isn't really rugby league. But then they went into the the up-tempo stuff to finish it off, and it really worked. Yeah, and I love, you know, you're saying everyone loves her. I think she's one of those, like, near 100% approval rate. And I love the way she – so John Travolta couldn't be there, so John Two Tribe Stevens took his role – and I love the way she sold John Stevens. She on stage said, I'd like to introduce the other John in my life who, like, had she met him before that night, you know, it was just, like, really cool. <laughs> and also the way she shouted out Brisbane and the crowd and Super League Grand Final. Just to hear Olivia Newton-John say, like, Super League Grand Final is not words that I would have expected that she'd have uttered. So it was cool to get her. I'm glad Travolta didn't turn up. We didn't know what a creepy was back then <laughs> until that um, interview with uh, Denton. Yeah. <laughs> and he was just unnerving. But I loved uh, Peter Jackson's recap of the entertainment. He said, while I'm on Livy and the pregame entertainment, it was the biggest, brightest and most exciting spectacle I've ever seen. The 20th anniversary of Greece just pumped the 60,000 strong crowd to fever pitch. I just <laughs> love the idea of... <laughs> hopelessly devoted to you coming on and the crowd just yes <laughs> i think they had the same reaction i did i mean i'm a fan of that song i love the film and i'm like oh <laughs> and then the grease mega mix comes in it's like yeah where we go yeah except the only downer is it suffered from the same problem that the actual musical does which the last song that we go together is like the worst song in the movie and that's what it ends on and that's what the <laughs> entertainment ends on as well. So I'd cut it after you're the one that I want personally. I mean, um, it would have been a good coup to get Frenchie out here, but the um, <laughs> to replace Alexandra, whatever her name was. But do you think in the film it's a metaphor for good Sandy is the ARL and then bad Sandy in the leather is Super League? <laughs> totally. <laughs> Uh, so along with the Grease Spectacular, there was assorted other horseshit, uh, a stadium stunt involving 20,000 members of the crowd, which I wasn't able to work out what that was. I'm sure it involved the holding up of some kind of sign. 
There was a fireworks display <laughs> from a RAAF F111 uh, staging a spectacular dump and burn over the stadium to signify that the game is on. <laughs> and then I know your thoughts on pyrotechnics in general, but when they did the fireworks before the game, the players run yeah. on. It looked you, like 94 bushfires. You could not see a blade of grass on the field. It was just white smoke. Yeah, but like this was the era that really put me off them, I think, because that was ridiculous. How would you breathe out there? You're trying yeah. to get, get up for the game. It just seems so obtrusive to yeah. have to deal with that. And for what? For some stupid little like lights in the air. Yeah, but run on the players did to these fireworks. Before we could play the game, there was a national anthem, which was performed by Human Nature. And I've got to say, I hated their look. I hated their songs. I hated their overall vibe. But an a cappella rendition of the national anthem, I thought it was brilliant. So I've got to give it up for Human Nature's anthem. My uh, mate used to work for MTV, and when they have like a corporate event or whatever, someone from the office has got to take them around and sort of be their minder, their handler. And he went through a bunch of celebrities that were all massive cockheads, and he said like they were the most polite guys. Whatever you needed, they do, and like you know, they're a pop band and they are what they are, good yeah. singers and follow every stupid fashion that comes out. I hated that little goatee the guy had. Yeah. But um, so they sounded great, and he reckons they're like true gentlemen. Well, that's nice to hear. They actually performed at the formal at my wife's uh, school. So, Holy uh, Jesus, yeah. what a get. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so let's get to the game itself, and there's a few key moments to talk about, but let's just start with some overall thoughts on the game and your experience re-watching it. What I took from it was I didn't realize how classy Steve Renoff was still at that yeah. era. Yeah. And the comparison between his steely determination, body language, and execution to come up with clutch plays and clutch tries compared to Peaches, mm. chalk and cheese. Yeah. So two massive game breakers and one that gets it done when it matters, and the other one is sort of more of a front running game breaker. I think that's true. I also think it's unfair to Peachy when you consider... So, Renoff scored three tries, which made him the second player in the mandatory grand final era to score a grand final hat-trick, Eddie Lumsden doing it in 1961. Since Renoff, Michael Robertson in 2008 is the only one to have got a grand final hat-trick. So, a rare performance there. The third of those tries, which was just the most beautiful play, it was... Langer to Walters to Lockyer to Renoff. Like, Beautiful, how did the yeah. Sharks have a chance? He did that same move in that game where he gets outside the play before the ball arrives, like that World yeah. Cup move. Yeah, yeah. And he's still doing it at that age. And well, he wasn't old or anything, but, I mean, he was a bit more stout than he was when he was a pure Ferrari. And I, I was just so impressed by his game. You saw it all there. You saw everything he could do in his class. He only had... You know, less than 10 metres to run, but he did so much in that 10 metres to get the try. And that was coming off some beautiful play by, you know, his aforementioned teammates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm fascinated by guys that can execute under pressure because I'm not one of them. <laughs> guys that do everything right in the big moments like that. Yeah. They're just uh, beautiful to watch. Some great comments on Renoff from Wayne Bennett. So just an overall comment. These all come from his book. He said, Steve Renoff is one of those players I wish had never retired. I just loved watching him play, which I think that's up there with the approval rating of Olivia Newton-John for a, a universal sentiment. Yeah. 
uh, it brought back memories of how much of a part of my childhood Renault was. Yeah, it was the premier yeah. centre. Yep. for most of it. Yeah, and I don't think we've seen his exact type since. There's been some wonderful centres in the 20 years since he retired, but no one really. I've gone like, oh, he's like the new Renault. I think it comes down to him knowing his game and what his role was. And this, again, this is a quote from Wayne Bennett. A lot of centers from that era became good dummy half runners. Steve was very capable of doing that, but hardly ever did. I said to him one day, are you all right to have a run from dummy half? I wasn't pushing him about it. He said, oh no, I'm a strike center. I don't want to use my gas up. When I get the ball, I want to be as fresh as I can be so I can run and use my legs as best as I can. Very cerebral. And Bennett goes on to say, it's a pretty good point, actually. That's what he was, an absolute strike weapon, a premium center with very few peers. And it's like, yeah, it's it's great if a center can do all of these other things. But if you're a weapon like Renoff was, just be a weapon and get yeah. your three tries. It did help playing outside that back line his whole career, so we, we can't discount that. Uh, yeah, benefit, and but, it, it was, yeah. I mean, they didn't really get too long together, but... Renoff and Lockyer together had some, you know, Cliffy Menzies kind of comparisons. It was just a dynamite combination. And then to go to Wigan and just keep going with it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, is there any more perfect career than that? Broncos to Wigan, you know? Yeah. <laughs> in that era. Yeah. Following on from Gene Miles doing the same. Yeah. Just on Lockyer, across the park, the Broncos were awesome. Like, Langer was awesome. Mundine had a sensational game. Darren Smith was fantastic. Like Langer was still a great player, but you could already see it becoming Lockyer's team. Yeah, I mean, Langer was uh, hurt during this game, they said, carrying some sort of injury, and he, he was just sort of conducting things a lot, executing with the bombs and stuff. Yeah, and the other notable thing for me, I mentioned Mundine having a great game. A lot of that comes down to what we said last week about Mundine needing the ball in his hands and Bennett eventually recognizing that and just having him out wide in the centers wasn't going to work. It wasn't going to be best for the team. There was some, I guess, you know, you don't want your starting hooker to be injured for a grand final, but what that did was allow Bennett to move Kevin Walters to hooker for points during the game and have Anthony Mundine play a bit more of a central role in the attack, which yeah worked very well. And there was a bit of talk about Kevin Walters as a hooker in the lead up. And Tim Sheen's actually said that he thought that hooker could be his best position. He would have made a great one. Yeah. But uh, when I saw the lineups and they're running out, it says, Andrew G, hooker. I'm like, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> I forgot about this. Yeah. So how that worked was they split the hooking duties, basically. So Andrew G would hook in the scrum, but Kevin Walters would be playing dummy half. I want to single out Darren Smith as well, because I thought he was pretty much best on par. Yeah, he was brilliant. And- so a bit of a, a strike against Chris Anderson there for not getting the best out of Smith. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah Darren Smith was great. Uh, a player we talked about last week and relating to Kevin Walters was John Plath, Freddie Fillin, who came on in the 20th minute, essentially to let Kevin Walters play at 5'8 again and have Mundine rack off back to the centres. But Plath's role as Freddie Fillin wasn't just playing at hooker, it was bringing the niggle into the game, which was one of the most noticeable things was how quickly and how absolutely he riled up the Sharks. I used to hate him as a player, right, watching him when I was a kid. Now I love him. And hearing his interview after the game, how laconic and cheeky he is. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. So within 10 minutes of 
him being on the field, the Sharks players started laying into him. He was on the ground and Les Davidson like gave him three punches that would probably see him get, you know, four to six weeks today. <laughs> he said something after the game. He goes, oh, I just went and shook hands with Steve. Then it's all forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> like a real footballer. Yeah. Uh, and interesting to me, there was a lot of talk about it after the match, about the niggle and Talis saying that they got really niggly and they fell into the trap instead of playing football. They were trying to punch us. They should have just played footy. Funnily enough, Les Davidson of John Plath said, that's the way he plays. We should have realized that and not retaliated. I try to play with my head and not my heart these days. And unfortunately, I played with my heart. Funny thing to me, reading that statement and then watching the game was right on the stroke of halftime as they're walking off. John Plath is giving it to the Sharks. I don't know what he was saying, but (laughs) even ET was arcing up about whatever John Plath was saying. <laughs> you can't be concentrating on John Plath's mouth when you've got like yeah. Steve Renolf and yeah, yeah. around. <laughs> Absolutely. And funnily enough in that Les Davidson comment is that at that stage when they're walking off at halftime, Craig Greenhill was starting to get really fired up and getting a bit close to Plath. And it was Les Davidson who came over and pulled him away. So I think Les Davidson had worked it out by that stage that, oh, Plus being brought on specifically to bait us and get us to do what I did, which is to retaliate. So he worked it out in the moment, but it was just really funny to watch. This is from 2016. There was an article in the Rugby League Week about the incident and that game. And Steve Renoff said, when we all get together, we always talk about how Plathy played such a big role in that game. It was real Michael Ennis stuff. With Plathy, you poke him and it's like poking the sleeping bull. Push him far enough and he won't back down. I've had Bengals with him and he's just a terrier. I feel like Michael Ennis, I think people genuinely thought he was a dickhead. Yeah. But I think people like Plathy. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those things you walk off at the end of the game and you go, oh, bloody Plathy, you got me. Yeah, yeah. But overall, I think the game was dominated by mistakes more than anything else. That in large part came down to the ball, which continuing (laughs) issues... I can't abide this ball and nighttime dew thing. It's like you're professional athletes or you're not. There were over 20 handling errors in the game. and Ridiculous. Watching it, it felt like there were 50. The spectacle was very marred by the handling. Yeah. And a couple of key mistakes firstly opened up the game and then ultimately decided it. The first of it was Wendell Saylor. So just after halftime, the Broncos winning 10-2, returning a kick and... Near his own line, Wendell Saylor threw a pass that was, I think it was Mick Devere who was in line to catch it, but it just sailed like right past him and was then scooped up by the Sharks who got their only try. It was a pre-brain explosion, brain explosion. Yeah, yeah. Horrendous error, but what that moment did was a game that was very lacklustre, held down by these handling issues and a game that was quite dull suddenly the intensity just lifted immensely right after that the Sharks scored make it 10-8 probably for the next 10 minutes or so it was a really gripping contest and the Sharks were looking to get some of the advantage yeah I thought they put in a good fight they were just a gear short of the Broncos that was all yeah yeah and it's probably a credit to the Broncos defense that the Sharks only try came from this error otherwise the Broncos contained them well And ultimately, it was another error which took it out of their hands completely with David Peachy catching a bomb, 
near his own line, but not seeing Peter Ryan running in at a million miles an hour and just drilling him. The ball pops straight out. Uh, Renoff scores his second try. He was such a hitman, you forget, and that was a defensive try. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Basically. This is Ryan. You can't blame Peach for that. No, yeah. I think it's unfair to blame Peachy. There was a worse drop earlier from Peachy earlier in the game, which was inexplicably called a knockback from Harrigan. But I don't blame Peachy for this error. This was <laughs> Peter Ryan's comment on it. Peachy didn't see me until late, which gave me the opportunity to keep going fast, and I just leveled him. He dropped the ball on instant contact and finished up on the ground underneath me. I knocked myself a bit stupid. I bounced up off the ground, saw the Pearl had scored a try and thought, what the hell happened here? <laughs> he treated him like a tackling bag. I don't know how a human being can withstand that and not have broken bones. Yeah. <laughs> but what was hilarious was the commentators talking about this amazing tactic of bombing. Yeah, yeah. It was some sort of novel idea that you bomb. Early in the game, there was a moment where I think it was Cronulla close to the line and Rabs has gone, oh, are we going to see the first bomb of the game? <laughs> you were saying to me midweek, you, you wanted to see how Rabs performed in the commentary box, whether he had the same gusto he had for the ARL. And I was really impressed with his professionalism and being impartial. Vintage Rabs, really. I was too, because he did get a lot of criticism among the Super League contingent that year for not calling Super League games with the same level of vigour. And in his book, he comes out and makes explicit what everyone in, involved in the game knew, which was that he was on the ARL side. In his book, he said, I've never before come out and declared my feeling publicly, but I believe what Super League represented was wrong. I had great reservations about the manner in which that whole episode went on. And on the grand final itself in his book, he talked about, you know, the ARL grand final that year and what a miracle that was. And he said, when Brisbane beat Cronulla in the Super League grand final in the same season, I didn't feel the same. I doubt anyone felt good about the year, which obviously this game wasn't a patch on the ARL grand final, but he sold it. I thought his commentary was great. I didn't get any sense that he wasn't fully invested in the game. I always respect him for his professionalism and how he treated the game in his career because he treated the role as an important part of the experience, which it is, unlike today where it's just a bunch of like sports tab guys jacking off, you know what I mean? Like, Yeah. But like Richie Benno, he, he added gravitas to it and um, I was really impressed by him. But mm. on another note, the commentary back then, so different. They weren't doing this um, fake uh, rah-rah for the game. Like, this is – we're witnessing history in this game. Yeah. It's, it's one of the greatest things you'll ever see. You know what, bullshit. They were just calling the game. Yeah. And um, refreshing. I want to single out sideline commenter Chris Bombolas. Bomber. I, I, I was like <laughs> – Bomb Chris Bombolas. Did you look him up? I looked this him up. I, I looked him up. So yeah, he's <laughs> never so, a uh, shit sandwich. <laughs> so he's a stalwart of Queensland sports broadcasting, I guess. Which I guess was why they had him at ANZ. Later went on to be a state MP for Labor, but I'd never heard of him before watching the replay of this game. But you could see in the interview with Plath after the game that the players obviously knew him quite well and, and had a good relationship with him. So yeah. I thought he did a good job of the sideline reporting. So I had no issue with Chris Bombolas, despite not knowing who he was. But in the end, just not a classic grand final. Watching the first half, I was like, this is legitimately the worst grand final I've ever watched by some distance. The second half I thought was quite entertaining and it brought it from a really bad grand final to just a run-of-the-mill 
Well, grand finals tend to get judged on the closeness of the game, right? So yeah. when it runs away, it's always a downer. But I think you put that in the Sydney Football Stadium, it doesn't look as bad. Mm. But you're right, the handling error is moderate. But yeah. what can you do? They had the same balls the whole season and there was due yeah. out. <laughs> yeah, but I think you're onto something with the SFS looking better because ANZ, I'd forgotten about how shit it looked. I didn't like it at the time. Not a good stadium, in my view. <laughs> so I never went there. I'd love to hear any you know Brisbane-based listeners who may have been there as to what game day experience at ANZ was like. I'll tell you one thing. It would have uh, done wonders for the sales of binoculars up there. Yeah. <laughs> so moving on to the presentation, which was a break with tradition in that they didn't do the runners-up awards, which was viewed as very controversial and even disrespectful at the time. But I think it's totally the way to go. Like It was just a bit silly, the players every year just walking on stage and getting their medal that that they didn't want. It it was almost like rubbing their nose in it. Yeah, it's the other way it's disrespectful probably, but um, it's good to see Super League carried on with the tradition of some dipshit businessman talking for no reason and um, handing out the awards like the sponsor. Yeah. (laughs) No one wants it. No. I loved Alfie's speech where he thanked the sponsors and said, thanks to all our sponsors for supporting us through the Super League War and the ARL War. (laughs) Alfie's so authentic. (laughs) Not having a Player of the Match award on stage was just bizarre. Crazy. They didn't do that. Crazy. Clive Churchill's one of the great things of sport for me. Yeah. Like to not have that set up and it's the Mal Meninga medal or the Terry Lamb medal or whatever you want to call it, but it's just the most obvious. Like I cannot believe they didn't do it. You had 40 metric tons of fireworks before the game and, and no man of the match. Yeah. I thought overall the responses from both the winning and losing teams were a bit muted. There wasn't intense heartbreak from the Sharks or for the most cases, rapturous joy from the Broncos. I mean, Gordon Tallis was there crying on the field. I think Mundine was as well. So some players, I think, felt it, but it was just a bit flat was how I thought it looked at the end of it. Well, I mean, unless you had an ARL grand final style finish, I think it's always going to have that feeling. Half a comp. Yeah. The war. I don't think you could do anything about it unless it was a classic game. Yeah. And I think the other problem was that it had been a long season with the World Club Challenge as well. And a long season that wasn't over. So the day after the grand final, the Sharks were flying to London to play the quarterfinal of the World Club Challenge. The Broncos were also still involved, obviously. You had the Test Series to be played. So football was still being played in Super League well into November. Do you remember that ad uh, for like Jenny Craig or Weight Watchers where, um, is it Rowena Wallace or someone? She had the bag of oranges around her neck. Going like, uh, here's how much weight I've lost. It's like carrying this. Oh, bag yeah, of- yeah. That's what the World Club Challenge was for yeah. Super League. <laughs> it was a bag of That's oranges. a very good metaphor, yeah. So I think it's no surprise then that players were feeling a bit jaded. Matt Rogers' comment on the grand final was, it received great press coverage, but it just wasn't what I imagined it to be. We were paraded through the streets of Cronulla before the grand final, but we were jaded and never quite climbed the mountain. The day after the grand final, we had to fly to London and play the London Broncos in World Club Challenge quarterfinal. So it didn't seem like a grand final at all. Pretty poor scheduling, really, but I mean... Yeah, 
And I think it says something of the Broncos that they were able to overcome that and still go on and win the World Club Challenge when they had test representatives as well. Do you reckon there was any um, amber ale flowing on that flight? (laughs) (laughs) And the other thing it did was to mean that a Super Bowl was going to be basically impossible even if there was the will. There was just no time to play it because Super League was still playing their season well into November. You know what they should have done? Like the greatest game never filmed, the dream team playing each other in practice at the 92 Olympics. They should have just got a ground and turned up for a scrimmage and played each other. Oh, I love that. I love it. But unfortunately, that didn't take place. So what we're left with is the one and only domestic Super League season. And just to finish with a bit of evaluation, I think... A lot of what they did was it became entrenched in Australian rugby league culture, whether it's the video ref, night grand finals, the pay TV side of things. Most of their rule changes were really good. Even the innovations that didn't take off, like I love what they did with grand final week and I wish we hadn't gone down more of that path. Like I think the NRL is doing a better job now. I think there were some great innovations throughout the season. They had a couple of little things I thought was cool. I always loved the ball, right? Even though it was made out of a cake of sunlight soap, <laughs> the, um, the look of it. And then they had the touch judges had the Super League sign on the flags. It's like mm. before they used to just be coloured flags. They, they just had little touches that were classy. Yeah. So they did a lot of things right and made some innovations. But I guess the question is, were these innovations worth the pain? Which I don't think so, but it was still necessary for the game to evolve and modernise. The war, it wasn't worth it, we all know that, but it really did uh, force the hand to move into the future, didn't it? Yeah, it did, and we would have liked to do that without almost destroying the game in the process. (laughs) but... But I think for Super League, it was basically over before it started. It was an uphill battle for credibility, They struggled to gain a foothold because, A, half the fans of the game hated them and even the ones that didn't were promised this, you know, brand new style of football and this, you know, super competition and got, at best, an average rugby league competition. But for the Broncos, what it meant was that they were on a mission in 1998. More than the ARL, they were tarred with the half-comp stain. So Wayne Bennett said... We didn't feel any less champions, but when the game came back together, we knew what 1998 would be about, whacking it right up everybody in the only possible way. But, you know, I want to stay on that half-comp stain thing because I think they wore it to a greater degree than the ARL, maybe because of the newness of it. And, you know, even if South and Balmain were shit, they were still South and Balmain. Like, people still had some recognition. Matt Rogers on the Super League season said, The downside, though, was playing teams like the Adelaide Rams and the Hunter Mariners because no one cared. There was no history. That's all true, but maybe because I was in Newcastle a lot in that era, nobody, and I mean nobody, mentioned that the ARL was half a comp. Everyone just pretended. No. Yeah. Delusionally pretended. And it used to irritate the shit out of me because it's like, just be real. You beat four teams. Yeah, exactly. And... On that, there was no history. Well, of course there wasn't. But 25 years later, we could be talking about this year as the birth of the Adelaide Rams, who by this stage have you know, won three comps and now rugby league is a viable option in Adelaide, and we're not. So it's another innovation that Super League were on the right side of, but just with the botched execution of almost everything since 1995, <laughs> it meant that they weren't able to capitalise on those innovations. 
<laughs> that sentence wasn't a dig. That was a factual report. Yeah. <laughs> but this is really interesting to me from Les Davidson. He was asked about the grand final and what winning it would have meant. And he said, it was good to be part of it, but it would have been much better if there had been the one competition with all 20 clubs in it. If we'd won, I wouldn't have been as happy knowing the likes of Manly, East and Newcastle hadn't been in the competition. I got more of a buzz when I was at South and we won a third grade grand final. <laughs> really selling it, Bundy. But I understand that though. So few players have been honest about that half a comp thing. Yeah, yeah. But I think when we started this season, we talked about the inevitability of compromise and how fragile that compromise was and how often it threatened to fall apart and how often the ARL and Super League at various points talked about 1998 as if it was viable that they could be running with separate competitions again. When in reality, I think the greatest lesson of this Super League season was everybody involved in the game knew that there was no way you could have two competitions again. Like It it just couldn't happen. (laughs) If we had a search for positives... Every time there's a rumor of a breakaway league in um, the papers, which there is every year, everyone just goes, not going to happen. Cause like, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. We, <laughs> we know it's not going to happen because we've seen how it ends. And I'm going to give the last words to Wayne Bennett, a very simple and eloquent summation of the situation. We'd hurt ourselves enough. And that's what it basically all comes down to. The game had hurt itself enough and it was time to get back together. Actually, getting there is still a way down the track uh, for us. But i got to say, on the Broncos, what a brilliant team they were in 97. Yeah, and then they backed it up in 98. Yeah. Era-defining stuff, that. Yeah. So if you haven't gone back and watched the 97 Grand Final, I would highly suggest doing so, if only because it's about the only Super League game you can find anywhere on the internet which is regrettable. But in the end, a very interesting watch. And in terms of quality of play, I thought the second half got going and you could really see what a champion team they were. So that is our episode. That's our chapter. We've covered the domestic season, but there's plenty more ahead. We've got Tri-Series Finals and World Club Challenge. We've got the ARL. We've got Newcastle. And then eventually we've got one competition again. So all that is coming up. Uh, for the rest of our season. But for now, we will say goodbye and we will speak to you soon. Toodaloo.